the last opportunity he would have to encourage this church that he'd spent so much time with. And Acts chapter 20 records what he said to the elders there. He says in verse 22, and, I, and see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was concerned. Now he had a lot to be concerned about. As he says even in this text, the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul he had tough days ahead. Going to Jerusalem in terms of his own physical safety probably was not very good advice. But Paul was going to Jerusalem to do the Lord's will and he says not only here but other places that that doesn't bother him that he has things ahead of him that, are going to, that is going to involve physical suffering. His concern was for the church and particularly now as recorded in these words in Acts chapter 20, he's concerned about the church at Ephesus, about this church. But notice what he's concerned about here. Now, I don't think Paul expresses maybe everything that he might have on his mind being concerned about, but it, it behooves us to take notice of what he does mention to these elders. He's concerned for this church. <coughs> he told the elders that wolves were coming in that would not spare the flock and that some would come from their own m- number. Now, Possibly ten years after his first visit to Ephesus, after the history that's contained in the book of Acts has transpired and come to a conclusion, the apostle writes the first of two personal letters to a young man named Timothy, whom at this point has grown to be Paul's own protege in the faith. What's interesting to note is that when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then again chapter 2 in the second epistle, Timothy is at Ephesus. He's the one who is there teaching and preaching at this church that Paul has spent so much time at. And Paul instructed Timothy to remain there, stay at Ephesus. And he had reason for that. Why was it so important to Paul that Timothy remain at Ephesus, that he not go anyplace else? Well, in the first four verses of the letter that he writes to Timothy, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, the truth to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when you went into Macedonia, he says, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. You see, the Apostle Paul was still concerned about the church at Ephesus. A church that had begun years before that Paul had been able to spend a great deal of time with relatively in terms of his his ministry. To tell them about the things that God was doing, to show them the signs that God had provided him, the ability to show, and to teach them what he declared was the whole counsel of God. 
Yet even after this church had received the whole counsel of God and the apostle had been so much time with him, later on, beyond the history of the book of Acts, the apostle writes to Timothy and says, stay there because I'm still concerned about this church. Now, what was he concerned about? When Paul first arrived at Ephesus, he fell under persecution, found himself being attacked and put in incarceration. The church at Ephesus, no doubt, had fought those battles and persecution from outside. Was he concerned about persecution? Was he concerned about the suffering of the Christians? I would suggest to you, though, what we can maybe derive from this text and from putting these things together is at this point, Paul's concern for the church at Ephesus was not environmental, nor was it political. And what was going on around them, that here was a church planted in a pagan city with all types of political persecution maybe coming their way. Now what Paul was concerned about, the danger that threatened the church, was doctrinal. It had to do with what was being taught in the church itself. And that the teachings that were being done, that the people were listening to and hearing to, was it truly what God wanted them to hear? And was there danger if it was something else? Paul understood, just as years before, that the threat still remained, that men would come in, even those who were the leaders of the church, and and present perverse things, speak perverse things, and draw disciples away. And so he gives Timothy a charge. The word charge there means command, to put under orders. He says, I charge you to remain in Ephesus that you may tell them who are teaching to teach no other doctrine. Teach no other doctrine. We'll take a couple of moments this, this morning and talk about what it means, this aspect of teaching no other doctrine. From the context of this passage, what are the implications of this command and this charge? And how do we relate it to our relationship to God today in the church? The phrase teach no other doctrine is a single compound word in the original language. I guess I'm ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, in the original language, it's a single compound word, and it's combination of the word hederios, which means other, and the word for uh, didaskaleo, which means teach, and then it's connected. Then it's the negative is added to that, so we get the phrase teach no other doctrine. And the idea here of this particular phrase, and the and I think. Some suggest that Paul coined this phrase of teaching no other doctrine. That the use of this phrase has certain implications. What is implied in the aspect of Paul saying, teach no other doctrine? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. One is that there is an original doctrine that can be differentiated from others. When Paul says, teach no other doctrine, he's implying that there is a first original doctrine that's different than the ones people might teach. It implies that there is an initial original doctrine that is able to be differentiated from the other and that that has to be kept in view. You know, example of your wife gives you a list. Diane gives me a list and says, go to the grocery store and only get what's on the list. Don't get anything but what's on the list. Use no other list. What would that imply? It would imply the possibility, you see, that I could add something to it, that I could have a list of my own, How should I interpret that command, use no other list, when I go to the store? It would make no sense, you see, if I had not been given the list initially. The command itself would make no sense if there wasn't an original document, an original element of authority that had been expressed. So when Paul says, 
tell them to teach no other doctrine, it implies the presence of an initial and objective message, something that they could understand had been revealed, and something they could understand, you see, was to be retained. And so the original doctrine is objective. It's not subjective. It, he doesn't say, make up your own list, or the list will change. He's saying you could teach no other doctrine because there is an original doctrine that's objective and that is intended to continually be retained. Now think about the historical context from when Paul first went to Ephesus and began teaching the truth, establishing the church now. Years later, he's coming back and telling Timothy, the one who's going to continue on in that work, and saying, uh, what I originally gave, make sure nobody teaches anything other than that. So no other doctrine then implies the aspect of the original doctrine. Would it also be implied that Timothy was not to allow other doctrines to come in alongside? That what this command would would indicate to Timothy is that God did not want him to abandon the original message, but he also didn't want him to bring something in alongside and say, well, we'll take both of these Gospels. The idea of no other Gospel or no other teaching involved the aspect here of a singular initial message that was to be retained and retained by itself, taught on alone with no other doctrine alongside it. Now Paul goes on to partially identify the false doctrine Timothy is to reject in verse 4. He says, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And that's an interesting passage because uh, sometimes we uh, have difficulty maybe putting our finger on exactly what type of false doctrines that were being uh, disseminated or could have been disseminated at Ephesus that Paul warns you against. And it's, it's hard to, maybe hard to know for sure exactly uh, what the genealogies and the fables were specifically. Some suggest that they had to do with this aspect of uh, myths or stories that are so associated with Jesus' life or with the aspect of the gospel story or even pagan myths. And the ancestral genealogy may very well have to do with this aspect of the the Jews' uh, prominent... uh, the uh, the emphasis they put on genealogies as a relation to the seed of Abraham. And that many of the Judaizing teachers found prominence in the fact that they could trace their genealogy back uh, to certain individuals. It's difficult to know whether or not what Paul's addressing here is of Jewish origin or rather of pagan origin and how it was being used. But I think it's fascinating when you look at the other translations of this particular passage. Holman's Christian Standard Bible says, or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, though these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. And you notice at the end of that phrase he talks about that is by faith. And then the NIV says, nor to deviate themselves to myths and endless genealogies, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is of faith. So however we interpret the genealogies and the myths, that would characterize the, fault, the other doctrine that Paul's saying should not be preached, what Paul makes clear here is that it is not the same thing as, it is differentiated from, and it works against the gospel that came by faith. Now, faith can be, taught, can be understood objectively as in the faith of the message itself or subjectively in the faith that I put in the message or the confidence and trust that I put in the message that's been revealed. And I think in some ways it really doesn't make any difference in this context because it bears the same point. And that is that a message had originally given to Timothy that he'd put his trust in. And that message was of faith and it was by faith that Timothy had received it. He was not to in any way deviate from that because any of these other things that could be brought in alongside 
the stories and the myths and the fables, the emphasis on genealogies, all of these other things work against the gospel message that's been presented. Now that's an important principle, I believe. There are a lot of things flowing from pulpits today that have no place alongside the doctrine of Jesus Christ. There are those who preach the benefit of physical fitness, healthy eating and exercise, the prosperity gospel and what it means to to enjoy physical success in this world, political agendas and human traditions that come from the teachings of men and they come right from the same mouths that attempt to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ right alongside the message of Jesus and His cross. We dare not be deceived. Those stories and those myths and those traditions and those agendas have no place alongside the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may even have benefit to themselves, but those who put in those other things and make them sound as though they're a part of the revelation, the original revelation of God, are teaching other doctrine. So the implication of Paul's command is an objective, continually authoritative truth that is to be retained from generation to generation. It assumes as well that Timothy understood this initial doctrine. He not only knew what it was, but he knew how to distinguish it from something else. He was familiar enough from what Paul had taught them and what the apostolic message was that when something else came along, he could tell the difference. He could call on others to make the same differentiation and distinction. So this command was a command to Timothy that required courage, a great deal of courage and discernment to make this distinction apparent to others, to those who would teach it in positions of authority, those who would be influenced about it, to say the same thing to Timothy that he said to the elders at Ephesus years before, watch, because there are things that can come in to disrupt the unity of the church and work against the purposes of the gospel. Well, one question I think that comes to my mind in, the, in terms of under, understanding the implications of this passage, what is this original objective authoritative doctrine? The word doctrine means teaching. And there are a lot of different teachings that go on and that are present, not only in our society, but no doubt in Paul's society as well. We think about Paul's experience at Athens when he found that there were people who wanted to hear every kind of teaching that there were. They are curious because there were so many doctrines to be considered. Well, later on, the Apostle Paul issues a similar command to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, so Paul goes on to describe later on, even in greater detail, the character of this false teaching and this other doctrine, and even some of the motivations that are involved in it. The New King James, interestingly enough, adds the admonition at the end of verse 5, he says, from such withdraw yourself. And that that was where Paul, that what Paul was telling Timothy on a personal level. You find individuals that are teaching this other stuff, withdraw from them. Don't associate with them. Don't give them credence or credibility in what they say. We're going to study these passages later in the year, the Lord willing, and talk more specifically about Paul's warning to Timothy here. But the doctrine contrasted to the, to the, to the other doctrine that should not be taught in this context are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if I just jump ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I try to make application of what he told Timothy in the beginning of the letter, it's not hard to recognize that what Paul is telling the young man is that you must hold on to the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That there, that's the difference. There are the sound words of Jesus Christ and then there's everything else that is a different doctrine. The word sound here is a word that means healthy. We use that same terminology. We say somebody arrives safe and sound. We mean that everything was okay. The word in the real context meant the idea here of something that was complete as well. So a person that was sound was a person that had all the parts that they needed. In terms of the health of your body, that certainly would apply. But it also had the idea of being healthy or being uh, pure. So soundness was health in terms of its effect. In terms of its character, what was sound was pure. It didn't have anything else mixed with it. It wasn't corrupted in any particular way. Now that helps me understand what Paul means here when he says that Timothy was to hold on to the sound words of Jesus Christ. These were the words of Jesus that would make the church healthy, sustain it, conserve it through the years. These are the words, the words of Jesus, who were, that would be pure and uncorrupted from the things around it and from the world itself. Now that's an important concept as we study through this in the year. We talk about Paul's relationship to Timothy and the commands, the admonitions that he gives him as it relates to us. We're going to see this idea of soundness over and over again. In fact, Paul references sound doctrine or sound words or being sound in the faith eight times in the letter to Timothy and Titus. If there's anything he's getting across to this young man is that you must remain pure. You've got to go back and recognize what has been said to you from Jesus Christ and the words of Jesus. They are the doctrine and no other doctrine is to be taught. Now when we think about the word doctrine and how many times it's referenced in the religious world today, and then we look at what Paul says to Timothy about doctrine, how can we ever conclude, like many of people do today, that doctrine is inconsequential to unity or salvation? It doesn't make any difference. We all have different doctrines and churches have different doctrines and people believe different doctrines. What difference does it make as long as we all believe in Jesus? The Apostle Paul put a very high priority on the aspect of the doctrine, the words of Jesus Christ. For Timothy and for all those who would teach even beyond the apostolic age, those who would lead, he's going to tell Timothy later on in this book, you take what I delivered unto you and you commit it to other men who will be able to teach others also so that what's been presented originally continues to be presented and that everything that is taught within the confines of the working of a church is sound, it is pure, it is healthy, more specifically, it is the words of Jesus Christ that's in view. And I think that's interesting when you think about the idea of what it, how important it is to, for us to preserve ourselves and, and conserve our health and make sure that things are sustained. How dedicated are people today about a healthy diet? You know, you don't eat things, you don't let your kid eat that stuff. You know, put the salt shaker down. Think about, what the, think about what's going to happen on down the road if you put this into your food. Pure food, clean hands. You ever go to a restaurant and see people pull out these little bottles and start putting things on their hand? <laughs> Killing all those germs? The germs today are a bad, bad place to be. It's bad to be a germ today. Everybody wants to kill them. Everybody wants to kill them. Why? Because we want to be healthy. 
Right? We want to be healthy. We want purity. We realize that health comes as a result of purity. And that's exactly what Paul's telling Timothy on the spiritual level. The health of the church, the ability of the church to sustain itself is based upon the soundness of the words that's taught. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Well, a question also I think we might ask ourselves, how could Timothy know the sound words of Jesus? Is there any evidence in the Scripture? That Timothy was with Jesus, that he personally heard Jesus teach, that he went with him as the disciples. Could we conclude from this that Timothy would know the words of Jesus intuitively? Was Paul assuming that God would know that the Timothy would know what God wanted because God was going to put it into his heart and he would and God would speak to him in some way? Was it a mystical thing that Jesus would reveal himself to Timothy or speak the words to him personally? I don't think we could assume any of that. In fact, what we recognize in the text is that's not the assumption the Apostle Paul had about Timothy's knowledge at all. Later in the beginning of his second letter, Paul again commands Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of sound words. There's that word again. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith that are in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul say? He's telling Timothy, you know what's right. You know what's pure. Why? Because I told it to you. These are the words that I spoke to you. So Timothy had heard the words of Jesus from Paul the Apostle. And notice again that Paul tells Timothy that these original words constitute a pattern to be followed. They are, you see, the guide work for what you will believe and what you are to teach. Now what this particular principle points out to us, I believe, is the authority of apostolic doctrine. We begin to deal with the aspect of teaching no other doctrine. We have to be fully convinced of the source of the true doctrine that God wants us to teach and that's healthy for God's people. And that has to do with this aspect of the teachings of the apostles. That's how Timothy could get the words of Jesus from Paul because Paul was an apostle. It's clear from Jesus' own words that he, that he intended to exercise his authority through the apostles. He told his apostles that uh, he had other things to reveal to them that he was not going to reveal to this time at this time because they were not ready for those things. So though Jesus always taught the truth, he didn't always tell the apostles all the truth. In John chapter 16, I have still many things to uh, I have still have many things to say to you, uh, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. Early in chapter 14, Jesus told the very same disciples that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I've said to you. Now there's some powerful implications in the words that Jesus spoke to the apostles. He told them, I'm not telling you everything, but the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all truth. That you won't on your own be able to remember everything, but the Holy Spirit is going to give you the ability to remember everything that I've ever said. If Jesus gave the apostles all truth... If he fulfilled his promise and he put them in the remembrance of everything that Jesus had taught, then if I'm going to find out what Jesus said, the apostles become the premier witness of that. And certainly that's what takes place. But if Christ puts all authority in the apostles, then the apostles must be the avenue to which the authority of Jesus be exercised in the first century. In Acts chapter 1, just before his ascension, Jesus told his apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. 
The apostles recognized and expressed this delegated authority. Paul speaking as an apostle said, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The word ambassador means the one who represents or speaks for another. Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. And what was Paul telling the Thessalonian church? He was saying to them, You get it, don't you? I, I, I'm thankful that you get it, that what I'm speaking to you are not just my words, but they are actually the words of God. And you've received them in exactly that way. You look at what Paul says about the brethren at Berea. He says they were more noble than even those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to know whether or not these things were so. And again, that's a part of this chain of command. The apostles were speaking audibly, personally with individuals, but they're also writing it down in what the Bible refers to as Scripture. And those in Berea understood that when an apostle wrote something down, he wasn't writing his own stuff. He was writing the words of God. And so they searched those scriptures to see if those things were so. Now the apostles exercising this the authority of Christ in their teaching and their writing always recognized that the absolute position of Christ was the head of the church. That it was his authority that they were expressing and not their own. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. But what we recognize in terms of the history of the book of Acts is that Apostolic teaching emerged as the authority of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a passage we're familiar with, the very beginning of the church, it says the church at Jerusalem continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. The miracles the apostles did, and the apostles were the only ones who did miracles for a little while in Jerusalem. The miracles the apostles did established them as the spokesman for God. And so when the church was trying to determine what are they going to do, how are they going to worship God, what does God want from them, they continued in the teachings of the apostles. Another interesting aspect of this is that when we look at the history of the book of Acts and as well as the epistles and put those things together, what emerges is that the disputed matters in the church of the New Testament were settled by apostolic teaching. There's always things that arrive, problems, aren't there? Things that come up, well, what about this or what about that? There were some big ones like circumcision. There are others about eating meats and sacrificed idols and how Christians were to live in a pagan society. Or whether or not Jesus was going to come soon and what was the time for all of that. And what we recognize is that all of those things were settled by apostolic teaching. That's illustrated certainly in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul taught in Thessalonica, he found it necessary to write two letters to the church there to correct a misunderstanding about the second coming. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was correcting things that had already been taught there by saying, no, this is what God revealed to me. So that apostolic doctrine by the Apostle Paul became that which settled the matter. Paul spent 18 months at Corinth. And the church at Corinth had prophets among them. And yet, they still had problems. How were the problems at Corinth solved? Paul wrote a letter to them. In fact, he wrote two. Because the presence of apostolic doctrine was the, which was to settle these disputes and to bring people's mind to unity. And Paul tells them, that's exactly why I'm writing to you. So that you can do what God wants you to do. And so he tells them there, 
I've written to you not to keep company with these folks. This is how you deal with that. This is how this is resolved. Apostolic doctrine then as the true message of the Holy Spirit would be taught as the continuing standard of the church. The truth of God was not a dynamic, ever-evolving, subjective standard where we figure out for ourselves what we're going to do or people were to meet and put their mind together and come to a consensus or some ecumenical council. It wasn't placed in the idea of what single man and what from generation to generation what he thinks was right, but rather it was contained in the writings of the apostles in the first century the church was to be guided. And it was that objective standard for every generation of God's people. In the earliest writings of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle warned against accepting another standard. In Galatians chapter 1, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. There are passages when the tense of verbs are very important to understanding the meaning of a passage. This is one of them. Paul says, the validity of a teaching is not just whether or not I say it, or whether even an angel of God would say it, but whether or not it has already been said. Even if I come to you and teach you something different than what was originally taught to you by me, I'm accursed for that. Isn't that what Paul said? It's what was originally given. It was this other original, initial, objective message that was to be the standard for God's people for all time. And the men or angels could change that. What, taught in one, what was taught in one church by the apostles was to be taught in all the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me, Paul says. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So when Paul sent Timothy to Corinth, he told, him, he told the brother of Corinth, this is why I'm sending him, so that he can tell you what I've taught you before, and he can bring you to remembrance of my ways in Christ. And I teach that same message everywhere. There weren't different doctrines for different churches. There weren't different doctrines for different geographical locations or different age groups or different cultures. There was one truth. You know, I... Maybe I mentioned this before, but sometimes I have my little pet peeves about things that that are, that are not really—they're just me. They're not really that that important. But one thing that kind of sometimes concerns me is you go to a bookstore and you're going to look at—you're going to buy a new Bible, and that's a good thing to do—to go buy a new Bible, especially if you wear the first one out. But what do you find there today in our pluralistic society? You have. A Bible for women, you have a Bible for men, you have a Bible for young women, you have a Bible for old men, you have a Bible for teenagers, you have a Bible for soldiers, you have a Bible for students, you have a Bible for teens. There's a Bible for everybody, and it's right there on this is the Bible for you. If you have if you are of this particular age group, this particular social background, if this is a part of your life. Now I'm all for people recognizing where they come from. But when I attach those two differentialities to something that is to be absolutely objective to every individual for every age and all time. It concerns me a little bit. I don't want to leave the wrong impression. Folks, there's not a Bible for teenagers and a Bible for older people. There is Scripture. That's what there is. And the reason it's that way is because God designed it to be that way. He designed that there be no other teaching, that there be no other doctrine than that which was originally given. In one of the last books of the New Testament, there is a a call for unity of practice and faith based on the single source of authority. In 2 John chapter 8, the Apostle John writes, the end of the first century, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for. 
that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So from beginning to end, from Galatians 1 to 2 John 9, the message is consistent. Teach no other doctrine. There is one message. Doctrine really does matter. The doctrinal pattern for Christians was drawn for all time in the writings of the first century. And we strive to follow that pattern today. That's why we can, if we in all good conscience are able to do it, call ourselves a people that belong to Christ. That we are a church of Christ. Not because we belong to some ecclesiastical society or because we find our validity in a propagation of a particular sect or denomination. We are a church that belongs to Christ because we teach the doctrine of Christ alone. And it's the words of Christ by which we strive forever forever to follow. Committed to no other doctrine than the doctrine of Christ contained in Scripture. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that's where we must stand. That's where Paul told Timothy he must stand. And if the church at Ephesus was to survive, Timothy was charged to make sure... They taught no other doctrine. Are you willing to submit to the doctrine of Christ alone, the teachings of Christ alone, shed away everything that you've heard or anything that you've been taught before that might very well be based upon the traditions of men and read what God has for you to do in the Scriptures themselves? That's my urging for you. Not that you believe what I say because I say it. Not that you believe what's taught by this church because it's taught by this church and it has the right name. But that you find what you do and what you practice in the pages of the Bible. That if you're going to be converted to Christ, listen to Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. That's doctrine, folks. But you know whose doctrine it is? That's the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Those are the sound, healthy words of Jesus your Lord. Will you obey them? while we stand and while we sing.